Hey everyone, happy to have you here for another episode of Legacy Matters. Today, as usual, we will talk about whatever comes up with a slight leaning toward discussions of preserving your legacy, preparing for things to come, and sharing stories we find amusing. All right, you two. Who's, uh, we, we should have Hello. worked this out before we started recording. We Who's going to do. do an introduction? Well, do let's it. just say, welcome to Legacy Matters podcast. That's pretty straightforward. Sam, hi, hi, happy birthday, Sam. Oh, thank you. Today's Sam's birthday. birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. yeah happy birthday. Uh, hi, yeah. Jim. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Yep. Thanks all for listening, here. everyone. You know Thanks the drill. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. subscribe please like. Please leave a comment. Please share. Follow us on Facebook, Legacy Matters Podcast, and also on Instagram. I like it when you give out the email address. And info at LegacyMattersPodcast.com, because some people still email. So we do check that. We do respond. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yep, you got it. If you don't want to put it on social media. Jimsy, why don't you uh, why don't you give us some weather? So I do a little weather report mm-hmm. every time. And once again, January, cloudy. But it's balmy out, 30-some degrees. It is. It's balmy. The roads are... Um, a little slick? Not slick, like we were talking about driving in. The right. car is just filled with dirt. Right, right. It's, right? it's a dirty time of year. No um, final destination today, No Jim. accidents today. Yes. Nope. Uh, we're good. It's the dirty time of year for like right? six months of the year here in Minnesota, yes. if you don't yeah. know that. Yeah. So we're hunkered, <laughs> we're hunkered down. Um, so we have a guest today, too. Yes. As Sanjeet Sethi, the new... MCAD president. It's Welcome. great to be here. Thanks for coming <laughs> Thanks in. Thanks for coming in. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. President of MCAD. Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Yes. So welcome. Um, Sanjeet, how long have you been here now? Um, I think I'm rounding out uh, six months. So I started uh, in the middle of July. Okay. That is, that is not that long. <laughs> not that long at all. Yeah. I think I'm right. still able to wear the mantle of being new. For right. At least a little bit longer. Yeah. Does that give you license to screw things up a little it bit? It gives me license to ask a lot of questions, yeah. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. yeah. And ask them over and over again, I think. Yeah. That's kind of a fun fun position to be in where you. I'm new. Yeah. I, I call it Columboing because yeah, I loved the TV show Columbo. Sure. Yeah. And, and where you, you can. You you have license to sort of act like you don't know exactly what's going on. I wouldn't I wouldn't normally ask you this, but I'm new here. What's the <laughs> thing, you know? And then, but really, you're just getting information. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's an opportunity to absorb, uh, to get some impressions, and then to further those impressions. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So MCAD is my alumni, so I'm certainly familiar with it, and I love MCAD. I mean, that has quite a quite a staple here in Minneapolis. Um, how did this come about? How did you how did you end up here? You know, it's a fantastic opportunity that I had heard about and uh, based on the work that I had been doing at the Corcoran School of the Arts and Design at George Washington University uh, before this, um, it seemed uh, like an opportunity and a community um, that I was really excited about engaging with. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so uh, the process began last February and um, and then before you know it here I am in you know July so right I have a question about MCAD so you have to explain to people you know Minneapolis College of Art and Design and it, it is a over 100 years old right yes yeah um, it's like the least swagged college around and I don't really understand why that is like like if someone you know my my brother 
graduated Harvard. And he's not this guy, but he is kind of that guy where, like, you got the sticker in the back of the window. You wear the Harvard sweatpants on Sundays. You got the Harvard shirt. He, Like I say, Chris doesn't do that. But a lot of people do that in a lot of colleges. You went to UW-Madison. Mm-hmm. There's more UM, UWM gear out there mm-hmm. than or UW gear. Uh same with University of Minnesota, but the College of Art and Design, you have to you have to explain to people like, no, it's the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. It's in Minneapolis, and it's been there a long time. Like, why is that? That's a good question. I mean, I um, and first of all, I, I'm, I'm still um, pondering the term "schwagged," so I'm I'm glad you kind of <laughs> sussed it out for me because I I didn't know what it meant at first, and then I under, I understood what it meant. But I thought that's I just okay, found I get it. out myself. Okay, so okay. swagged. Yeah. So I'm going to try to use that in the sentence at least twice uh, the rest of the week. Um, and um, so. You know, as a part of what I'm trying to do is understand kind of what's the broader visibility of MCAD and how do we go ahead and expand on that, you know, and whether that's through, you know, more swagging, you know, and, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, um, but also kind of just more promotion of the expertise of our faculty and students and staff. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and MCAD grads are everywhere well, here yeah, in the Twin well Cities. Well regarded. They're, they're all over the country and they're probably all over the world, but like it's a, it's, it's an a elite private school. institution. Good school. Yeah. yeah, I've been fortunate to meet uh, a tremendous number of alumni uh, all across the country, yeah, whether it's in Portland, Oregon, or in Los Angeles, or in New York City, um, and around here, um, that are all doing remarkable work, you know, like yourself. And, you know, and, um, um, and I think for me, really also pushing the boundaries on what cultural leadership means and um, what art and design practice means. Yeah, yeah, how do you see those boundaries being pushed right now? You know, I think they're pushed in many different ways. One way is we're starting to see a real strong interest in curatorial practice uh, within students that are having a more formal art and design education or an entrepreneurship-based education. Um, But we're also seeing that notion of saying, how do they not just occupy a gallery environment as a cultural producer, but rather as a curator um, of that space and of that type of broader cultural production? And inherent for me, that's a very positive sign within an institution like MCAD, because it means there's an engagement beyond oneself. There's an engagement about how you start to pull together a specific narrative of ideas and concepts that are going on in the world around you. So in some ways, I think that's an example of pushing those barriers. Um, I think our entrepreneurial studies program does that by starting to think about uh, forgetting about the dichotomy between a left brain and right brain kind of notion, but rather what is an emergent idea around innovation that still keeps a strong social focus, um, but thinks about um, uh, uh, economic viability um, alongside cultural viability? So I think those are a couple areas mm-hmm. that I think immediately come to mind. So entrepreneurship is, you know, I would think that you have to that you be at a business school if you're going to in for entrepreneurship, but art and design. Uh, you know, I've talked to Jim about this forever. Like, as an artist, you you are your own entrepreneur. Uh, he has to create product and find a market for it and sell it. Um, and granted, you can use galleries, but they seem to be dying these days. But but anyway, so it so entrepreneurship is a part of what. what you get when you go to you can get out of that experience absolutely and we offer a bachelor's in science in entrepreneurial studies Hmm. so um, uh, I think with that notion is that we know that quite a few of our students once they graduate are going to be self-employed they're entering into a gig economy how do we prepare them for that Um, uh, when I was in school it was uh, 
um, here's how you take really good slides. And uh, maybe if you were lucky, someone looked over your CV and that was about it. Um, here we know that the type of uh, professional practice and the type of preparation that we need to do to have students go out um, and decide um, how they want to um, profess a sense of cultural leadership or expertise in arts and design um, requires a more elemental degree of skill building in professional practices in understanding um, how they can go ahead um, and not just have vision um, and the expertise of a specific field of study like printmaking or furniture design or illustration, but also how they can feel like they can translate that into a, an economically viable existence. Um, so I think that does require that, that focus. Um, I think for me, one of the things I'm really inspired by, by MCAD, um, is that sense of an incredibly resilient community, um, an incredibly forward-thinking community that's interested um, in seeing what's next and what's out there beyond the current field of view that they can see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, so I saw you talk, um, I believe it was at the Tattersall, and um, one thing that I thought was so interesting that you talked about and I related to as, you know, an MCAT alumni is that, and I remember coming back and telling you guys, you know, it was this idea of this cross-pollinization, you know, of different disciplines. And, and how, you know, an artist ends up, you know, once you do graduate, how you end up in the world and, and the way we've ended up, you know, you're a contractor, you're, you know, a camp guy, you're a designer, you've worked in politics, but, but the way you kind of end up, you know, as an artist, then um, becoming a collaboration with others, you know? Yeah, you know, I think that that there's that somewhat kind of classical notion that um, all creative practice, certainly within the visual arts, um, is a solitary and isolated practice. Um, it's not to say that there aren't specific experiences and, um, and understanding of concepts that don't occur within an individual and a personal basis. That still occurs. Um, but we also know that um, collaborative practices are more and more part and parcel um, 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 of visual expression um, of a broader sense of creative practice. And so I think that that's one piece of that. How do we go ahead and appreciate the do-it-yourself movement alongside the do-it-together movement? Um, we also know that our students are really, really hungry uh, for that type of engagement. They're hungry for collaborative learning. They're hungry for engagement outside the walls of an institution into a broader community. Uh, they're hungry for a broader sense of socioeconomic diversity within their classrooms. Um, and for me, I think that's why a higher education that's specifically focused in creativity is particularly exciting at this moment in time. Yeah, I think my my limited experience with uh, with you know nineteen to twenty five year olds. Well, I worked at camp. I, I've actually should take that back. I know a lot of kids that have gone through that age period, but uh, but currently, when you get done with college, I think the idea is that you get out and you you first of all you're likely in a lot of debt, or your parents have paid for a big portion of it, or whatever. You know, so there's. It's a, the economic cost to get a degree is high. And then you get out and you sort of look out at the landscape and realize, like, it would take me a very long time to become a high-level employee in any one of these companies that I'm going to work at. So maybe, maybe it sort of pushes them to be more entrepreneurial because they can start their own thing and be CEO fa a lot faster than if you try and work up through a company or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the world is a dramatically different environment mm-hmm. than it was um, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, or in 30 terms or 50 of, or years, 30 you know, or 50 years like, ago. Yeah. Well, and I'd also say that the students that we're seeing have dramatically changed from the past five years, and I think from the previous 10 years before that. Part of that we can you know, account for based on smartphones and emergent technology. Sure. Um, but sure. part of it's also kind of a broader socioeconomic shift and what we're looking at in terms of when we think about diversity, when we think about um, how there's a more broad acceptance of neuroatypical learners, for example. Um, um, Absolutely. And I think it's institutions like MCAD that try to embrace and try to support that type of diversity um, that are institutions that are going to be more successful. I, you know, I oftentimes I talk with um, individuals that uh, um, have the opportunity to employ uh, MCAD students or alumni. Um, and in many ways, part of my argument to say why uh, an MCAD grad should be part of, uh, uh, of different teams and on a, for a variety of different uh, enterprises and processes is really for three main reasons. One is that I think um, students uh, from a place like MCAD really understand the iterative process regarding failure in a way that you don't in a, a traditional liberal arts education or a traditional sure. engineering education. Um, uh, that degree of failure and that critical understanding is so fundamental. It's haptic. Um, it's direct. Um, it's uh, hard to avoid. And through that, I think there's a tremendous learning process. The, the second reason for me um, is that Inherently within the education that we're able to provide, uh, there's an understanding and acceptance that the world um, is an asymmetrical place. Uh, It's not all going to equal out into a profit and loss statement um, or onto a balance sheet um, or onto a very neat Venn diagram that oftentimes it's it's messier than um, that. I know. Hard to believe. (laughs) Hard hard to believe. It is hard to believe. And the the third thing is that there isn't a problem in the world that doesn't have a cultural dimension to it. Um, There isn't, whether you're designing a bar of soap or you're looking uh, at a device that can pick up uh, trash in the Mississippi River, um, there isn't a problem that isn't cultural. Um, And I think, ideally, uh, those are the types of individuals that are going to really start to provide the greater degree of innovation that I think that this society needs to see in the future. I yeah, completely mm-hmm. agree with that, and and that's sort of what, you know, I, you know, I I've seen you talk at a couple of places now, and and some of um, there's companies here in the Twin Cities, or in Minneapolis here, um, that that uh, have employed MCAD students, you know, as sort of this diverse sort of like how would you solve the problem? A this is something that thinking. we've talked uh-huh. about even with the company I founded, you know, like you, we bring together a group of people and. You know, you present one problem and, you know, an engineer might look at it one way and artist looks at it a different way and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, a designer a, looks at it. That's a very old, uh, yeah. stay, the, the, you know, everything's a nail to a hammer or whatever. You know, if you're yeah. through the eyes of the, if you're a carpenter, you look at solving a, a problem one way. If you're a plumber, another, uh, whatever, but... Yeah, I, I really butchered that one. You, you did kind of, Sam. <laughs> you did. But that's what's so interesting about, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, the ability to acclimate, you know, is mm-hmm. sort of the thing that I, you know, think that, that MCAD prov- provides students, you know, this ability to, like, you know, kind of pivot and, and see things. Adaptability. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you, know, I th- you know, I think, <clears throat> um, you know, I think oftentimes it's about, um, 
how do you get how do you get students uh, to ask the right questions? Um, I don't think it's about the answers. I think oftentimes it's about how are they forming um, the most powerful and poignant questions that they can focus on. Um, and I think you do that in some ways by you know by example. Um, uh, for me, uh, when I first arrived at MCAD, um, I was you know posing a series of questions to the faculty and staff. Um, and to alumni that I've met, you know, what do you want MCAD um, to accomplish and to, to, to focus on in the years ahead? Um, you know, um, how do we educate the next generation of cultural leaders? Um, you know, to, how do we get them to be experts in specific fields of study, but also be able to uh, address some of the most pressing issues of our times? Um, uh, because we know that a lot of our students um, aren't necessarily uh, going to be working on the subjects that they studied in. It doesn't mean that studying these fields of study are a waste. Uh, it means that what we're providing them with is a degree of skill building, expertise, a work ethic, uh, but just as importantly as a degree of critical problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then that critical problem solving can then translate um, uh, into so many different areas. Um, oh. You'd be surprised as to the number of MCAD alumni that I've met um, that have been uh, gone to MCAD and then were, you know, drafted into service in Vietnam, um, you know, um, I came back, then went on to run successful companies or do have a successful design practice, um, and then have gone back to contribute as mentors and as leaders uh, within their own communities or within MCAD itself. Uh, And that's, for me, a remarkable sign of that type of adaptability that we're talking about. Yeah, and we... I've got two boys, ten and twelve, and and we're raising diff- we're raising kids differently than than they were raised when we were young. Um, we talk about this frequently, so I'll blast through it. But you know, when we were kids, uh, being homosexual was that was first of all you weren't allowed to be, and then if someone accused you of that, it was a weapon. And now my twelve year old can point around the classroom and be like, "Oh no, that kid's gay, or that one's gay," and and same thing with with race. Uh, it was you know we it, it was clear when a kid with browner skin came into the school or something when I was young. Now, my son is in a very diverse classroom, and it's, that's not really an issue to them. So we're definitely raising a different type of person than than what came up through schools when we were younger. So they've got a you're going to be finding a different group of people and and educating them differently i imagine yeah Yeah, you know and and i think you're absolutely right with that i think that with that um, change it also requires a greater degree of institutional cultural competency you know i mean i think that that's uh, we always want to celebrate diversity whether that's neurotypical diversity whether that's uh, non-binary gender diversity whether that's um, socioeconomic diversity um and that's fantastic. Uh, but what an institution has to do um, is really understand where they may have a learning curve and trying to understand um, how they need to change and how they need to adapt um, um, to support that type of diversity and not to simply welcome it in unsupported. Um, and I think that's one of the ways you have to do that is to really um, be more rigorous uh in examining the systems that may have occurred in place within an institution that may have been racist or oppressive to start with, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally. So I think that part of that's one of the processes that I'm, uh, you know, uh, on the way to embark on in MCAD is for us to have a 
more significant examination of what are the structures in place that have promoted uh, racist or uh, oppressive policies, and how do we more fundamentally change that? Uh, it's not enough to simply have a you know kind of a DEI with my kind of air quotes right now uh, initiative, <laughs> um, you know, um, because I think that in some ways uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are oftentimes too comfortable for institutions. Um, oh, we have a DEI coordinator, sure, so therefore the work's done. Yeah, we don't have to worry about it. And I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think institutions like MCAD that are asking um, and talking about diversity uh, need to be more rigorous in the way they ex- do a lot of self-reflection. And so that's that's one thing that I mean that's on. true of all of us in life, sure. generally. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge point right there. Uh, you know, just to be able to, which is something we talk a lot about, and that's just history. You know, what is the history, and how do you look back and, and look at some of these, you know, how did we get to where we are? Yeah, and what what institutions led to this, or what what practices within institutions, what practices in my own life? You know, we talk about it. We, Jim and I uh, will occasionally use language that we we are not supposed to use anymore you know there's things that i never knew was offensive to someone but turns out it is and i have to train myself out of using that because it's been a you know a phrase i've used all my life and and now i can't anymore so i have to find different words for it and i think that's that's the rough equivalent of what it would take to redesign institutions to get them to do things differently because it was probably never ill-intentioned in the first place but, but it's not working comfortable mm-hmm. in their pos- yeah. you know in the way and then life just keeps going on and on and all of a sudden 10 years go by right you yeah. Know. yeah interesting so where'd you grow up i grew up in uh, rochester new york rochester yeah. new york mm-hmm. yeah so cold is okay cold is okay you've seen snow before this I, isn't uh, new to you i have seen snow before <laughs> i am i'm used to it i'm used to it in april which is i think probably more of the point i'm used to feeling like february is three months long so mm-hmm. i feel like i'm uh, Fair. um yeah i'm yeah. i'm okay with that so all right that's good that's good and, and where did you go to undergrad um i started off my uh, undergraduate at a, a small college out in richmond indiana called earlham college okay. um and uh, I was there thinking I was going to um, study anthropology and theology because I thought the best way to save the world was to understand systems of culture and systems of belief, um, which I think sounded good at the time. That's as very a, it as does a very, sounds good. It does. Um, sounds like and, an expensive um, school and a really, really serious program. Yeah. You well, know? you know, I um, I thought I it, it's a it's a great school and and, uh, and it and I thought it was the exactly the right thing to do. And then when I was there, I ended up taking a ceramics class um, initially just to think about getting the arts requirement out of the way. And I was totally bewitched and ensorcelled mm. by this material. Yeah. Um, I found it to be incredibly. I'm not sure I was the. I certainly wasn't the best student at it initially when I started, but I found a desire to excel in it like I hadn't in any other thing I had done before. Um, and so um, tried triple major, then tried to double major. You know, I think theology was the first to go, and then anthropology. And then I transferred to an art and design school um, in upstate New York <laughs> called the New York State College of Ceramics at Alfred University. So in oh, the, uh, all ceramics. Um, it was an art and design school that okay. did everything else, but its mm-hmm. specific focus, it was a part of a land-grant uh, institution that was set up um, I think probably in the 
1870s or 1880s that um, um, that specifically focused on ceramics. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. So, so it was, um, that's what you ended up getting for undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I did a BFA okay. in um, uh, in ceramics. Um, do you yeah. still do? Ceramic work? Uh, I haven't in a little bit. I'm just trying to get settled here, but sure. it's kind of my focus. Um, do you? Are you? Do you have the keys to the school so you can sneak in at night and go into the <laughs> ceramics yeah. lab? And you, so, and you know, surprisingly <laughs> enough, the degree of irony is that I, while um, I'm the president of this fantastic art and design school, it does not have a ceramics program. So, right. oh, um, so uh, maybe that'll change in the future. We'll see. But it, uh, not just uh, not just because of my kind of area right. of interest, but I think. Probably more importantly is that craft-based mediums are as yeah. important to, to have as part of some of the making dialogues as uh, the traditional studio arts and design-based disciplines. So I think there'll be, you know, uh, we could possibly see some shift in the future, but it's... Um, um, you can't do that on your so, first day. So, no. no <laughs> well, I, you know, I think that there's uh, there's time to build things up. But again, I, yeah. I think that if we're a culture that embraces making, we've got to be thinking about how we're supporting making in lots of different forms. Right. So the studio practice at MCAT, I mean, yes, there's no ceramics, but there still is painting. There's furniture design. There's Um, a vast number of uh, materials and uh, and mediums uh, to focus on. Right. Um, And uh, and everything from, you know, a great foundry to rapid prototyping studios to, you know, CNC routers and, you know, 3D printers. Um, you know, to um, kind of a you know, um, it's an incredibly well-equipped school to handle it so is. many different aspects. Um, we have a relatively new program, product design, and so uh, with that comes a specific investment regarding other aspects of making too. So mm-hmm. um, there's definitely um, there's there's um, is not uh, a desert regarding materials and processes. Right. Uh, yeah. It's so important. I mean, we talk about this too, you know, about working with your hands mm-hmm. and thinking with mm-hmm. your hands, you know, that's the craft, the art, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that, that allows sometimes, I mean, for you to kind of think, you know, when your hands are busy, you know, and you're of thinking course. in one ways, but um, it's interesting when you were saying that you're a ceramic artist, you know, I mean, that sort of makes sense to me that you, that you also are a practicing artist, you know, just listening to your sort of, you know, trying to uncover something, trying to discover something in, with the college, you know, is similar to making, you know, art. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I've been fortunate to have my own creative practice evolve over time from doing ceramics to then also doing sculpture, um, uh, and then also focusing on projects that, involve community engagement, uh, where uh, my creative practice ends up having me be more like a project manager, um, as well as um, a facilitator for dialogues that um, I think need to occur that may not be occurring. Um, uh, You know, in the past, I've done everything from a smell-based memorial project um, in Memphis, Tennessee, to to looking at um, uh, working on a story where at-risk youth were able to interview um, elderly cultural leaders within a community to talk about their first experiences voting to look mm-hmm. at kind of issues regarding kind of civic, civic engagement. So I think, you know, for me, what's nice is that I've kind of washed myself of any specific disciplinary hierarchy or sure. inclination. Um, uh, and, and I kind of more broadly believe in kind of creative practice and have been fortunate to be involved in conversations and in interaction design and taught courses there or in, you know, uh, industrial design, uh, where also I start to see that merging. So I guess, yeah. I guess for me, you know, in particular, um, you know, I, I've found 
that I'm more interested in the broader questions at mm -hmm. hand um, and then seeing what's the appropriate medium to execute those. Um, I, you know, I did a, an MFA at the University of Georgia um, in ceramics and sculpture. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then afterwards, you know, my parents were happy. I had gotten a graduate degree in the arts. I had gotten, <laughs> then I got a teaching job and, um, and I was at things my first were teaching. Things looking good. Yeah, things were looking good. And of course, you know, after a year of my first teaching gig, which was at a college in South Bend, Indiana, I, um, I ended up turning around and going back to grad school um, because I felt like I was still, there were still certain dialogues that were missing. Specifically, you, need more, you needed to learn something else to accompany. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. so I ended up going to MIT um, and I was out there and got a master's in science and advanced visual studies. But reality, I was, I was focusing on um, kind of non-gallery focused creative production and oftentimes that creative work being collaborative in nature. I was particularly interested in knowing um, how do you start to um, evolve discourses regarding um, things that I felt were unseen, hidden, or overlooked um, within communities? Um, um, and part of that was understanding how do you work with people that may not uh, understand the same visual discourse or, or language that I had come from, and how do you make sure that you can feel multilingual and seeing how do you can reach out and translate what you're working on um, to people, whether it was in the sciences or um, in urban planning or, um, you know, um, uh, in product design. And I think that was incredibly helpful for me. So quick, quick question. And then we'll take a, we'll take a little break and we, we have a whole thing to uncover about this, what you were just talking about. Um, just kind of hidden stories and, and talking about that, but is, is classic, uh, engineering part of the curriculum there too, then like, like it sounds like if they're, you've got routers and and you're Science. making products and you know see. yeah yeah not in the traditional way that you would see an engineering curriculum not in the kind of traditional kind of bachelor's uh, of science kind of way okay but certainly when you're talking about prototyping and you're talking about systems design there's certainly aspects of engineering there's come be into some play mm -hmm. engineering yeah that. yeah, and yeah. It's, it's not simply about kind of using the tools it's about kind of understanding the broader uh, um, uh, constructs and theories behind some of those tools yeah Cool. All right. Well, we'll take a we'll take a quick break so Jimmy can sure purge. <laughs> All right. Be back. Sorry, this we're is back. A great. Today's show is brought to you by the Andalin app, a first of its kind digital legacy preservation app that allows you to digitally attach photos, videos, and audio recordings to the places and objects you love. Imagine hearing your grandmother's voice telling the stories of your family heirlooms. Preserve your memories, prepare for the future, and share with those you love. Andalin, available in the App Store and Google Play. Visit andalin.app for more information. Need some help with a construction project? Looking for thoughtful design and honest answers about what is possible and what is not? Kinetic Design Build is a full-service boutique remodeler servicing residential and commercial clients in the Twin Cities. Design and build with purpose. Visit kineticdesignbuild.com to request a consultation. Packing for a trip? Let Pack Simply give you a little help by delivering travel-safe products directly to your door in an airport security-safe pouch. Unbelievably easy and surprisingly simple. Make your life easier. Visit PackSimply.com. Interested in art? James Holmberg is both an artist and an art consultant. His strong connections in the Minnesota art world 
give him a unique perspective on the talented pool of artists from our region. Let James guide you to an original work that will come alive in your home. Visit jamesholmberg.com to find out more. All right. Do you want to go on a wilderness adventure with me, Sam? Or maybe you know a group of kids who could benefit from an extended break from their electronics. Or maybe you just need a break from those kids. Visit earthedfound.org for more information about how to get started. For information about becoming a sponsor of Legacy Matters, please visit LegacyMattersPodcast.com. It's like I'm new at this. Got it going. All right, we're back. It's your birthday. You're allowed to. I know. I'm a little. Get the birthday pass. Thanks. (laughs) They cut me a lot of slack on this anyway. So, Sanjeet, when we, Sam and I went and visited you recently, um, you know, maybe a month ago, and and you had mentioned about the hidden history and, and hidden trauma. And some of the things I think your wife is working with, or and you said that something interested. about the kids, yeah, at risk youth and and speaking with older like there, this is all right in our wheelhouse. All the it's things we're trying to do. It's very interesting because after we left that meeting with you, Sam and I, and then Sarah, I mean, we have not been able to get this out of the way we think. You know, the hidden history and hidden trauma that lives in in places. Yeah. So I mean, you know. You know that we have this digital platform that we've built that preserves memories and legacy and and all of that. And initially, where we came at it from the start was telling the story of an object. Like, how does if if we've all had some interaction with a specific object, and each of us has a memory of that object and a story to tell about it, and it's a family heirloom or something. How do those stories attach themselves to the objects so they don't get lost when the people who know the history of it are gone? So that was how we came into it. And one of the things that we realized right away was that you have to tell the places, you have to document the places that the object has lived. So if you're going to tell the story completely. Mm-hmm. So right from the start, we started geolocating, like placing monuments in in places in our memory, and then adding stories connecting those places to objects and people and events and then telling stories to them but we hadn't really thought of this hidden using it to to place monuments around town or something like that and then then tell the history of that place in a in a way that can't be done in an analog world kind of Yeah, and I mean, I think it's something that I really appreciated when we did have that conversation, and and like I said, I was kind of gravitated towards that potential yeah. within a platform like this. I, um, the territory regarding regarding hidden sites of memory, um, hidden sites of trauma, is something I'm very keenly interested in. Um, I'm interested in it in relationship. Uh, to some of the more tensioned relationships between a community um, and broader governmental control or power. Um, you know, um, the old um, uh, 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 saying of the, you know, uh, monuments are, you know, built by the victors it really right. kind of rings true. Um, um, we think of that within, you know, like the Arc de Triomphe or something like that, but we don't think of it within the interstitial spaces within a community. You know, here you've got Plymouth Avenue and an incredible kind of racialized tension in this city, which from my perspective is still uh, not been entirely reconciled, you know, and still has a long way to go. Uh, within that are specific sites of trauma um trauma that um that 
that the state may be unable to or unwilling to recognize. Right, it, um, it could be either. Um, it, it could be either. Um, or it could be something or, that was really just hidden from public view over generations yep. and generations. Um, but still, from my fundamental belief, in order for communities to heal uh, and, and to move forward, uh, there needs to be some recognition um, and some mourning and some understanding of what some of those significant traumas are. Um, you know, I think that you've you see that in so many other kind of areas. There are um, a series of great you know artists and and provocative acts that have gone on, which start to go ahead and do that aspect of the recollection of of memory. There's an artist named Joachim uh, uh, Gertz and Esther Schalov Gertz who. Um, I think it was in Austria that they uh, did this project where um, in this central plaza of this one Austrian city, uh, they were secretly pulling up the uh, the cinder uh, stones, the cobblestones, yeah. um, and then they were engraving, taking it back to their studio, putting a placeholder in, and engraving all the different sites of the Jewish cemeteries that were destroyed during World War II, and then placing them back in. Right. So it's a completely hidden memorial that all of a sudden imbibed this environment with uh, suffused this environment with uh, the activity of this recollection, this more dramatic recollection of of these lost cemeteries. Um, you know, I that's think, super interesting. Um, yeah. So I think that there's uh, there's a lot. I also think that um, we have to differentiate, from my perspective, the difference between history, um, which is also something that you see as really being written by those that are in power, and testimony. Yep. Oftentimes we privilege history over testimony. I think in part because we're such a um, we're such a kind of litigious and um, driven society um, that we assume that there's a degree of veracity and therefore we privilege um, history as the factual kind of set of evidence versus testimony about what was felt about that. It's a little bit like the Kusar, um, Akira Kurosawa movie Roshimon, right? Um, mm. uh, in in action that is appearing from different perspectives and different points of interpretation. Um, I'm very interested in testimony. Um, you know, I um, I'm interested in you know. For me, one of one of I'm a big fan of Studs Terkel's work. You know, I think um, his idea of an oral history of uh, what occurred um, within the United States, or you know, his book The Good War, I'm talking about World War II, uh, is a way to examine. Um, all these events that you can look at in a progressive linear fashion, but to examine them as a felt series of experiences from different perspectives. Um, uh, the ability for platforms like what you're talking about or other avenues provide that opportunity for the elevation and the celebration of testimony to be equally as valid as history, and in some cases more valid than history. Because it's the first-hand account of what happened. It's the felt account. Mm-hmm. It's the and it's the way that you recover from trauma. You recover from trauma not by reciting a series of events as they may have occurred within a police log. You recover from trauma by you being able to recount the trauma that's occurred to you or to your society or to your community from a first-hand account from your own position. The order may be slightly different, and that's when people get hung up on, mm-hmm. but it becomes an accounting from your own voice, and that's a, an essential part of any kind of recovery from mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is the telling of history, I mean, is it fair to look at it as sort of like a journalistic endeavor? Uh, it being, you know, a journalist is supposed to impart impartiality into their telling of a story, and in the process, you know, kind of you, you take them 
that's that veracity you're talking about. You take them at their word because it's an impartial look at it. But if you're only ever telling an impartial story, and, and I know history is more complex than that, and we get it wrong, and there's different motivations behind it. But but let's say you're you're telling this, the kind of testimony, or not testimonial, but the, the history of it in that journalistic way, and you're not infusing uh, emotion into it, then you're missing, that's the testimony you're talking about, right? And, and I think ideally, then that's the perspective of, uh, of the individual journalist. It seems to me that um, journalism is oftentimes about representing uh, um, a series of different events as they may have occurred, but also an analysis of those events and the impact of those events um, and the potential that those uh, events may have um, uh, on uh, the world around us. Um, right. That requires for me an acknowledgement of what that individual's perspective is and coming into that, but also more importantly, um, uh, in that interpretation um, of, of what, what specific ecology that that specific story is going to impact. Yeah, and then that's augmented by the testimony of the people they interview to show. So, you know, if they're, they're telling the story one way, but then they're giving people an opportunity to put the testimonial in. And that's what history is lacking in this case. Sure. You know, I was, um, uh, when I made uh, uh, this, when I did this project years ago um, in Memphis, Tennessee, called the Kuniwada Bakery Remembrance, um, which was the smell based memorial. Sure. Uh, um, it was in part because of the research I was doing on another point of trauma that had occurred in Memphis, Tennessee, where uh, apparently after the start of World War II, um, people had gathered in Overton Park, which is an Olmsted Park uh, in Memphis, um, and they had um, uh, they were so angry. There was a Japanese garden that was part of um, the that was uh, in the city of Memphis, uh, and I think they had apparently had heard a story about how they had clubbed all the koi fish to death, which just sounded you know. Inc- incredibly i don't even think it goes beyond xenophobic just downright kind of cruel and just this convulsion of anger um uh, but in the corner as i was looking through a lot of microfilm um and looking at old newspaper articles was an article about this japanese bakery um that had been shut down it was a it was kind of a side note on the front page but kind of down in the corner that talked about uh, a bakery that had been um seized by uh, the Memphis Police Department, the owners of the the bakery were put uh, put into jail. The assets were seized by the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, and here, this in this kind of convulsion of xenophobia and this anger for this attack um, um, was this goal of somehow shutting down a bakery, which was the kind of the heart of a community. And the the article is very cold. It's very small, but sure. it's very cold. Uh, it's very factual. Uh, but in doing so just by reading it then you know 50 years later yeah um you're seeing the incredible impact that those actions have had um and within its coldness that understanding of where that that author's bias was mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. we were talking about we've been talking a lot about this stuff but uh and, you know and, one of the stories i, I tell is if someone was you know if someone was killed a hundred years ago murdered and it was never solved uh through generations and through time, granted, it may eventually get forgotten about, but we as humans, someone's keeping it alive. Someone's, someone remembers uh, that person and wants to know the truth years and years later, and every now and again, they do uncover the truth of those things. So we as humans, we, we shouldn't deny the fact that we actually care a lot about the, the history of 
places and and people and what's happened throughout time. So, I th- you know I think from my perspective though, um, part of that has to do with a contested space around power. You know, um, if you um, um, if you're a person of color, if you're an uh, an immigrant, oftentimes you're fighting for a degree of visibility that says that your narrative is as important as the narrative of an intergenerational kind of traditional white family. Um, uh, and I think you see that. You see that within the news when you oftentimes hear coverages of, of individuals that are uh, that may have been women that have, may have been abducted that are white receiving broader media coverage than if they are a person of color. Absolutely. So, so I think that I hear what you're saying, but I also think that there is a broader... Um, there's still a broader kind of oppressive nature that exists within <clears throat> whose narrative we're celebrating. Absolutely. Um, and I think you still see that in part due to the contested space regarding monuments and memorials. And that's mm-hmm. one thing that I'm particularly interested in. Um, you know, um, the fact that it's hard for some people to understand, well, why would you be offended by walking by a Jefferson Davis statue every day? It's just a statue and it's just Jefferson Davis and this or person isn't alive. Or, it's just know, a flag. Yeah. Um, and there isn't that kind of more fundamental recognition of the trauma that's associated with that. Oh, you're just, you know, being weak or you're being a sissy or whatever oversensitive. else. Oversensitive. You know, um, you know, the Cleveland Indians logo, what are you talking about? That shouldn't be offensive to you. In the sense right. It's, um, you know, it is one of those things that um, that's not even a microaggression. That's an aggression. That's a that's an act that you have to go ahead and put up with. So, um you know, I think there is an inherent and uh, rightful skepticism, you know, that you'll see to say, wait, is my narrative valid? You know, um, um, are we sanitizing that kind of history? Um, and again, so for me, I think then that goes back to saying, how do we recognize these sites of trauma that, that may not be part of that broader discourse? Um, how do we do it in ways that, that can lend itself to other people contributing their own perspective to that? Empowering another And it's person. that healing part. Yeah. That hopefully... Yeah. Yeah, and I and I have some concern. So like I, I think that that you can start to address that in a digital realm. You know, if 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 you can plant a monument at the spot digitally and then have the testimonials there, that's great. But I think there is this risk of then uh still people who don't want to see that, don't want it to be there. Uh we'll just choose to avoid it still which absolutely yeah but at least it's there you know i that's yeah i mean i think that i think what um you know for example i think of there's a real interesting dichotomy right between um the boston freedom trail right and and then adding the african-american legacy trail to that that adding that the the legacy trail to that the african-american legacy trail and i may not get the exact term right for that but that didn't occur overnight i mean that was that was it a took thought time to build that, up. It, and it was a contested it was, that was a contested act in the sense that yeah. did not occur overnight there were people that were very upset about that occurring you know yeah. and that validity of that counter narrative i think it's important for me 
I don't think an aspect of a virtual memorial um, exists in a vacuum. I think it exists within broader dialogues of saying, how do you create tangible recognitions of trauma um, you know, that sure. exist within a community, that, um, that allow a community to mourn, grieve, and ideally establish a greater degree of resilience. So I don't think that it exists um, as kind of an end-all, be-all, but rather as part of a broader yeah. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I could imagine that now there's the, the kind of, uh, what would we call the pilgrims when they came over? The um, Europeans, right? There's, so that's the colonists. Freedom Trail is the Europeans, the colonists' mm-hmm. idea of what happened. Then the African Americans have finally got their spot. And I imagine the Native Americans are thinking, hey, when are you going to? Th- this was our place, too. You know, we have stories here. So Yeah, and, and I think that that's. Um, again, I think that's what it is, is that how do we celebrate the layered history? You yeah. know, we, you know, at MCAD, uh, um, all public events, major public events I go to, you know, we start with a, uh, a land recognition statement to say that very carefully that the land that MCAD is on is not our land originally. Um, it's land that was taken from indigenous people, and that we as an institution have to take a moment to recognize that. When I was at GW at the Corcoran, we talked about that in relationship to the Piscataway people to say, hey, this is a incredible edifice, but it sits on land that's unsettled at best. So part of it's right. just a more fundamental, um, um, elemental acknowledgement to say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the space that we're on is contested it's unsettled it has um, it may have a rich history but that history also we have to acknowledge has trauma behind it um, it's the only way I think that we're able to then start to talk about some of the more progressive and exciting ideas if we say look we can't lose sight of the fact that that this is uh, that this land has been taken this land is currently um, unsettled um, and it's not going to be settled unless we make some more dramatic amends for some of those actions even if we can say no one around this table was responsible for that um, well and i i think there's an emotional cost to both sides of a of a traumatic event too like of course if you know if someone was if there was a group that was somewhere and someone was killed there or something you would say that the trauma is with the family of the people who were killed but i think the trauma persists on the other side as well and and needs to be I don't think you can I don't think you can live your best life if you've been a part of of bringing that type of trauma to someone and then uh, that carries out generationally by because you can't then be the best for your children so maybe they've they they won they're more affluent but they're not living their best life in a, in a certain way and the trauma needs to be healed for both sides yeah I mean I think I think we have to be careful the way we frame that in the sense sure. that by that it's to to make sure that we're not kind of equating the fact that the trauma of, of you know of being a victim of um of some kind of horrific xenophobic act is the same thing as the trauma of living covered. living with the memory of having committed that act yeah There's, of course they're not the same uh, yeah know. yeah i just i mean i think um it's your birthday so i want to give you a chance to clarify that <laughs> no so, no it, um, and, <laughs> and i would never it i know they're not the same and i hope i didn't indicate that they are it's just that in order for one to be righted you have to acknowledge that both existed and then figure out a way like i i see a better time where the the acknowledgement of having committed the trauma uh the people who know that they're of that lineage or were a part of that or benefited from it or whatever it is meet with the people who uh whose family the trauma was perpetrated upon and they get together and they find a way to forgive 
or to at least start the healing with each other. And I think that's where true, true monuments and memorials have the potential to go ahead and provide a place for reconciliation. And I yeah. think what you know, I think what you, you what I'm. I'm hearing you kind of drive towards is this notion of kind of how do we start to think more holistically about restorative justice? How do we start to think about restorative justice, not just for current acts of trauma, but uh, intergenerational acts of trauma that have occurred? Um, and I think that's that's where we can learn a lot. We can learn a lot from the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa and Ireland and places like that, where I think um, you saw this notion of saying that it's more important, um, it's more important to heal than it was uh, to simply go ahead and assign blame. Um, it's right. not to say that we need to have, we do need to have a clear understanding of, of the faults that have existed. But I think if the end goal is reconciliation, how do we go about that rigorous, exhausting, um, arduous process of reconciliation? Um, because I think uh, no one is born um, to, no one's born prepared to commit traumatic acts. There's, right. a, there's a societal conditioning that has occurred uh, that creates that environment which makes this acceptable and we have to recognize that yeah yeah you're just uh i'm a baby at this you're just further along the process and uh very articulate about it so that's why we have that's why we have guests in but yeah it's i think you know you understand what i'm driving at and and i know there's efforts out in the world to see that this happens. Well, making I, effective change is what also you're trying to get at, too. Well, it was interesting. Yeah. We were just talking, too, because we had Chris Coleman come in. Uh, that's the former mayor of St. Paul. And he, uh, working with Habitat uh, Humanity, Humanity, and uh, was talking about after World War II, you know, when African-American soldiers would come back here. And, you know, where, you know, if you were white, you would get this housing area if you were african-american you would get this area this is where you would live you know and mm-hmm. and not the same right amount of resources either you got right. you know despite being in the same unit and doing the same things you got different benefits out of it yeah. so the gi bill largely didn't go to african african-americans and the housing bill didn't largely go to african-americans right you know? and in not knowing exactly where that is here in the Twin Cities, you know, Sam and I were having a conversation because, you know, I know there's a ballpark over there where the kids go and play baseball. And I thought, gosh, you know, I I would benefit. I would be interested to know if I was sitting there, you know, what exactly happened on this, this plot of land. Right. I mean, and, you know, you think of what occurred in Florida, for example, a lot of Floridian communities, um, uh, when they said that you need to integrate public swimming pools, uh, so many of these communities decided to go ahead and back up concrete trucks and just fill up the swimming pools with concrete, you know, rather than have any sense of racial integration within, within, within this. And, you know, I have this real desire to kind of you know, take what I'm sure are some of these kind of concrete, you know, kind of lots uh, and excavate the old, you know, the poured in concrete from the swimming pool and kind of try to... Oh, they're still I mean, sitting there? I, I don't know if some of them are, be. but I'm assuming mm-hmm. that there's got to be some that are, sure. you know, that are there. But I think there's, for me, I've got this real great desire to repatriate these mm-hmm. To write that pools. wrong. Yeah. yeah. And, but the physical object of yeah. the swimming mm-hmm. pool itself to somehow pull out that, the encased concrete <clears throat> and, and see that kind of original object through, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but... Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Um, but so I think there are these interstitial sites that have existed of these contested spaces. Um, you know, uh, there's a, a great, um, uh, one of my favorite uh, um, creative works is uh, 
um, a work done by Mel Ziegler and Kate Erickson called Camouflage Histories that was done as part of the Spoleto Arts Festival in Charleston, South Carolina, where they took us, um, they took a house that was in the kind of uh, kind of between the more gentrified neighborhood and um, and the more kind of on the other side of the tracks neighborhood. Uh, they worked collaboratively with a local army base and their camouflage division took the paint colors from the prescribed gentrified neighborhoods, you know, housing association to say these are the only paint colors. And they painted a camouflage pattern all across the outside of the house. And they <laughs> labeled in white stencils all the different paint color names. And through the paint color names, you see this incredible tableau of a history of the contested space of the South. Um, I think it's Confederate uniform gray, plantation white, um, you know, Fort Sumter, you know, uh, brown. I mean, it's it's this powerful, just by the names of the paint I mean, you colors. You wouldn't know that if you didn't do that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so I think that there are touchstones and touch points that I think can occur that then bring about broader discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and ideally you support that discourse. And as an educator um, and as someone that's involved in, in kind of culture, I think the more dialogues we can have about that that are propagated by stimulating um, uh, kind of visual indices, the better, the better we all are. Well, that's uh, in a nutshell why we do this. You know, it, we have guests in so that we can broaden our our own minds as to, I, I don't know any of this stuff. You know, and it's, I'm, I worked with kids. I guided canoe trips up to Hudson Bay. I've done construction. I, I just don't know all of, I, you can't, as a human know everything there is to know so we have to have people like you who have studied this who can enlighten us in a short amount of time um kind of blast through a lot of the things that we just don't know you know it's yeah. important so yeah as we as we wrap up unless you got something you wanted to no i i mean i i i guess i'm just really um grateful sanjeet that you're mm-hmm. the president of mcat right yeah. now because because uh, you know, I think your vision is extremely mm-hmm. strong, and I think you're going to bring a lot mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. college. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to be here. Um, I was excited about this conversation, and uh, and I'm I'm hoping you'll invite me back, and I'm hoping we can uh, oh, uh, we can dig into some of these these topics more. You can come back anytime. Yeah, awesome. this we we have at least a few more hours of conversation with this. <laughs> you know, Excellent. at least. Well, and you know, unfortunately, that like we need people to just spin off different conversations because we can't have them all but we have had been very fortunate to have some really fantastic Mm -hmm. guests in here Mm -hmm. um, of all stripes who have opened our eyes to things and the common theme is it to me anyway it seems as if we live in a community where people are willing to figure out what they didn't know or or what they were mistaught Mm -hmm. and willing to challenge their own ideas about it Mm -hmm. and figure out a better way to move forward and i think it's it's because generally speaking everybody's nice you know if mm-hmm. you give them a chance they're nice but i think we realize that uh what i see is that people realize that we're passing something on to children that we just have to stop passing on to mm-hmm. children I yeah think that's where it comes from the passion and dedication that you're talking about is something i i see so reflective in in this room with the three of you but you know but also with so many people i've met i think um, there's a desire to not simply reinforce the status quo. Uh, there's a desire right. to really figure out what really what is the future of culture, um, and and how how conversations like this start to go ahead um, and push that along in a specific direction, and and not simply accept 
um, kind of the way things have been done in the past. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of this. Yeah, and and I'll say one more time with that first conversation that we had when we visited you at your office. I mean that that triggered a, a lot. Yeah, so, each each of these things builds on the other. I mean it's it's awesome. It so, is great. Thank you so much for coming thank in. You. Thanks thank so much, Sanjeet. guys. Okay. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. We love comments and feedback, so go ahead and let us have it. If you'd like to learn more about Andalin and other legacy projects, visit the website at andalin.app or kineticlegacy.us. Take care. Mm-hmm.